welcome to The Field. I'm your host, Zoe Pallier, and on today's episode, we are so fortunate to have Chris Wilson here with us. Chris's story is nothing short of remarkable. Chris grew up in a community where he was exposed to extreme poverty, drug addiction, and gun violence. At the age of 17, he was charged and convicted of an offense, we will get into the details shortly, and sentenced to spend his natural life in prison. While he was incarcerated, he became determined not only to get out and turn his own life around, but also to make a difference in the lives of others growing up in circumstances like he did. I could go on and on about how incredible Chris and his story are, but let's dive in and you can hear it directly from him. Season one of The Field is brought to you by Castles, Brock & Blackwell, one of Canada's largest business law firms. I'm excited to tell you about an incredible initiative at Castles that I have loved watching come to life. Castles understands the funding challenges that small businesses face and is particularly aware of the systemic challenges faced by Black business owners. As a firm, Castles also believes that when small businesses thrive, so do their communities. In response, Castles launched an annual Black-owned small business grant in the summer of 2020. The grant itself has been funded entirely from individual support across the firm, reflecting a broad commitment by firm members to address the impact of systemic racism. Castles has also matched every grant dollar with pro bono legal services to ensure that the recipients have the legal foundation to allow their businesses to thrive. For more information on this initiative, check out castles.com or on Twitter at castles, C-A-S-S-E-L-S. Chris, thank you so much for being here with us. I have had the pleasure of spending the last couple of days starting to listen to your audiobook, and I'm so beyond inspired by your story. So I'm thrilled that we're getting to speak today. Well, thanks for having me. I'm excited. So I would love to start by really going kind of all the way back and just talking a little bit about your childhood and growing up and uh, what your environment was like growing up. Sure. I am from Washington, D.C., and I grew up around like the late 80s, early 90s. And I stayed with my grandmother from Monday through Friday, and I would spend time with my mom, who lived right outside of D.C. in Maryland, in Prince George's County, on the weekends. And around this time in the late 80s, it was the era when the crack epidemic was, you know, flooding our communities. And so there became increasing gun violence in my neighborhood, which I didn't really understand. Uh, there was pretty much uh, 100% African-Americans living in my community. So there would be a lot of you know, gun violence that just started happening out of nowhere. And police would police our, our community very differently. We would call the police when stuff happened and it just sometimes they wouldn't even show up. And so it was really strange for me mm-hmm. growing up. And my grandmother did the best she could to protect me and she had all kinds of policies when they started shooting. I had to sleep on the floor, sleep in a bathtub. But it was a very unusual upbringing, to say the least. Yeah. And when the sleeping on the floor and in the bathtub was in case of stray bullets coming through the windows. Yeah. That, you know, around this time when crack was sweeping in the neighborhoods, people started upgrading their, their firearms. And so that's what, when, you know, the introduction of AK-47s and, you know, assault rifles started flooding our communities and the bullets would just go through our houses, go through the cars, go through the houses. And I unfortunately lost a few friends due to straight bullets. Wow. 
And so, so you're spending this time with your grandmother during the week and your mom on the weekends. And then where to from there? You started to, you moved in with your mom. Yes. So at a certain point, I think at sixth grade, I moved in full time with my mom in Prince George's County and started going to school in Maryland. And at this point, my mom was in a very abusive relationship with uh, a police officer who she ended up having a child by, my little brother, uh, Corey. And, you know, this relationship uh, just like spiraled downhill. And so it's strange because, you know, I left an area where there was a lot of gun violence and went to a relatively safer community, but there was a lot of abusive verbally and physical uh, violence within my house uh, in Prince George's County. And so it just got really bad uh, around this time. Mm -hmm. And tell us a little bit about the impact of that on you. So, I I mean, I remember as if it was yesterday, uh, my mom, after being beat up many times uh, by this guy she was seeing, she decided to cut it off, the relationship off with him. And he just didn't want, he didn't agree to it, right? So he started uh, coming through, uh, stalking my mom, harassing my mom. And so one day he attacked uh, my mom and I, knocked me unconscious, and he sexually assaulted my mom in front of me, and he tried to kill her. And she survived, and he lost his job as a police officer, but he pled down, got out of prison, and started stalking our family. And back then, in the state of Maryland, there was no law against stalking, wow. and so it was nothing we can do. It was, you know, it was crazy. It was like the movie Cape Fear with Robert De Niro. It's like he just kept turning up. He'd break into a house. He fell through the ceiling uh, one time. Like, it was nuts. And I mean, how did that, I can only imagine how that would have impacted your feelings of safety, but do you want to sort of speak to that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, when, when all these things was happening, like when he broke into our house and fell through the ceiling into the living room, crashing down, and obviously we called the police, but because he used to be a police officer, a DC police officer, they wouldn't do anything to him. And it, it was strange. And he would call and say, you know, one by one, I'm, I'm going to take you guys out. And then my brother and cousin were shot, gunned down. And we didn't know like why this stuff was happening. My cousin passed away, my brother survived. And it was around this time, I guess I was uh, 15 or 16. I just started carrying a firearm with all of my siblings did, just uh, as a way of uh, protecting ourselves. Yeah. So you end up with the firearm and your your cousin's been killed, um, which I understand from your book was a really profound moment for you. You were quite close. Yeah. My cousin was closer with me than any of my siblings, uh, minus my sister. My sister and I were very close, but my cousin was like my big brother. Yeah. I'm sorry. And so that, that happens. And then shortly after that, there's an incident where you are, for lack of a better word, like kidnapped. Yeah. It's, it was, it's a terrifying, uh, experience. I was, you know, loosely like associated with folks in the neighborhood who I just would speak to or maybe hang out with who were involved in, in drug dealing, which I've never dealt drugs in my life. And so they had stolen some drugs from some folks and uh, from D.C. And then these people came out uh, out into Maryland and they just they couldn't find the person they was looking for. They said, we'll just grab anybody associated with this person, their friends. And I'm outside not knowing what's going on. And I get kidnapped and taken to a vacant house and they're debating 
where they want to dump my body. I'm still alive, but they just like, are we going to kill him? Should we throw him in the river or, or should we bury him? Like, what, what, should we burn him? And I'm, you know, I'm a kid. Like, I, I remember how terrified I was and trying to explain, like, I, you know, I don't deal drugs. Like, you got the wrong person. And I, I ended up using the bathroom on myself. I just, um, I thought it was going to be my last, my last few hours alive. And they ended up finding who they were looking for. And then they let me go. And I remember when I went back home and I was crying and my mom and some of my friends was over and I, I explained what happened. I had soiled my, my clothes and stuff and they laughed at me. And they says, how did you, how did you get kidnapped? And you had a gun on you. I had a gun on me, but like, I wasn't, I, you know, I wasn't a tough guy. I didn't want to use it, you know, and they took it from me. I had it on me, but I just, I just, you know, wasn't that type of person that could pull a gun and like fire it at people. And so, and I remember that feeling of anger when, you know, my mom, my friends were, were laughing. And it was at that moment where I vowed to never put myself in a situation where um, someone can take my life. I felt helpless. Mm-hmm. And so that inevitably led to when people came after me the night of me committing my crime, me actually having, I don't know, the, um, you know, it gave me. I, mean, I, I pulled my, my firearm and, and I fired it, which I, which I regret. Mm-hmm. So I just kind of want to paint that picture a little bit more. So now you're on the heels of your cousin and your brother being shot at. Your cousin doesn't make it. Yeah. You've got someone that's stalking your family that's broken in, that isn't being addressed by the police. So there's sort of that like sleeping with one eye open yeah. going on. And you've now been kidnapped and fortunately made it out, but kind of within an inch of your life. And so then can you describe this moment where you're being approached by the people before you kind of, before you ended up pulling out your firearm? Right. So I remember it was, it was late at night around uh, 11-ish and I was going to walk to the store, the 7-Eleven, to get some food and stuff. I don't know what, nachos or or big bite hot dogs or whatever I used to like to get. And while walking to the store, I noticed there were two men that appeared to be following me. And what I ended up doing was I ended up walking to, I mean, they followed me for a couple of blocks. I ended up walking to a gas station that was, it was lit. It was a lot of cars there. And it was like a, um, a grocery store there and pay phones. So I said, I'll go ahead. It's, it's well lit and there's a lot of people. So they're not going to really try anything in front of all these people. And, and I had a gun on me, but I just, you know, I didn't want to use it. And so they ended up approaching me and asking me, they was like, you Chris, right? And I was like, uh, yeah, like, who are y'all? And these were grown men. Uh, I was 17 at the time. And, and these these men, which I found out were in their 30s. And they said, you know, we've been watching you. We've been watching your family and don't think you're safe. And while the one person was in front of me talking, another guy was circling behind me and tried to like jump on me. And I just started firing my, my weapon. And then they ran in one direction and I ran in the opposite direction. And what I found out later was that my bullets had hit one of the people and I ended up taking a person's life. And how did that feel? I just, I couldn't believe it because, you know, when I got arrested and I said, you know, I kept thinking like, well, they ran away. They ran down the street. So I know I didn't hit anyone. So like, I'm not, I'm not guilty of this, um, but I did. And it was one of those sobering moments where I just knew that my life was over and that I probably would, would never get out of prison again. 
And so you then, you're obviously, you're charged and you are convicted. Yeah, I was charged as an adult. So I was 17, charged as an adult, thrown in jail with adults and then sentenced to natural life in prison. And while awaiting trial, uh, some people came after my brother and uh, my brother survived again, but they killed my dad. My brother was staying with my dad. So that was right before I got sentenced. Mm. So then you get sentenced to natural life and you spend initially a bunch of time in solitary. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, once you, once, once you get a life sentence in the county jail, they have to separate you or they don't have to, but they, they tend to separate you from general population because they feel like you can be a danger to yourself or others. Mm-hmm. And so they put me in solitary confinement, which I, you know, you shouldn't have done because it just really like really messed my mind up Yeah, just to be in isolation like that, which was the opposite of what I felt I needed at the time. Mm-hmm. And what did you feel like you needed at the time? I wanted a uh, human interaction, you know, just, mm-hmm. just being, I was allowed to come out of my cell uh, one hour a day and they would put me in an outdoor cage and there were still no people. Correctional officers didn't talk to me. I might hear screams and people uh, singing and rapping like in their cells, but I just had limited uh, human interactions. And I just spiraled downhill um, to a very dark place. And how long did that last for? <sighs> Maybe um, 100 days, 117 days or something like that. It was a long time. Wow. That's a really long time. Yeah. And then at some point there was something sort of shifted for you. Yes. It was when I finally had been sentenced and transported to uh, a maximum security uh, prison. And once I got in there, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was like stuff you see in the movies, like the, the people incarcerated were, were actually like literally running the prison. And I fell into a deep depression. I couldn't believe that I was so young and small. I was 118 pounds. I didn't have a mustache on my face. And they essentially told me that I would have to grow old and and die in prison. And around this time, I ended up meeting one or two other people who were young people who had life sentences, but they were working towards getting out. They were educating themselves. They were taking vocational shops. And I became inspired by their level of motivation or or their uh, optimism that, you know, maybe they would get out one day. And so it was a series of conversations and I eventually wrote up what I call my master plan. And tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I remember uh, one of the people I, I met uh, who had a life sentence, his name was Stephen Edwards, and he had a big stack of books and he was studying computer programming. He was writing out code on blank sheets of paper. And I asked him what he was doing. And he says, I'm gonna teach myself computer programming and I'm gonna start a software company when I get out, I'm gonna make millions of dollars, I'm gonna buy my dream car. I got this plan to travel here and do this. And at first I, I laughed at him. I says, dude, you don't even have a computer. Like, how are you going to pull this off? <laughs> and he looked around at everyone in the rec room. It was about 30 people in the rec room. He says, look around. So I looked around. It was people in the corner doing push-ups, people getting tattoos, people arguing over the phone, people were watching Jerry Springer and like screaming at the, the craziness. And he says, they've taken everything from us. He says, but nobody can take away the knowledge that we put in our minds. And uh, that's our way out. And so I thought about that the whole night. And when I went back to my cell, I pulled out blank sheets of paper and I started thinking about, you know, what my end game would be and like, what would people say about me when I'm no no longer here? 
And I knew in my heart I was a good person. I knew I was intelligent. I knew my mom instilled in me good values. And so I started writing down stuff. I wanted to get my high school diploma. I wanted to earn a college degree. I wanted to learn Spanish. I wanted to travel the world. I wanted to buy my dream car, a black Corvette convertible. And I wanted to write a book one day, um, I wrote. But like most importantly, I wanted to be free again to return to communities like the ones I grew up in and create some opportunities for people to turn their lives around. And so I wrote all this stuff up about two pages and I sent a copy to my judge and a copy to my grandmother. And then I just went to work. And what happened? So it took a, a long time of, of therapy, school. I ended up, um, I got my high school diploma a few months later. I got into vocational shops and I taught myself carpentry and plumbing and sheet metal. And after that, I got into college and it was in college where it really opened my mind to the world. I remember history classes and the professors would come into the school, into the prison. Um, we had a school inside of the prison and they would, you know, they were tough on us, just like our professors in the outside world. And I remember my professors would say, there's no excuse for you uh, to write papers like this and get this wrong. You don't have anything but time. So go back and do it over. And I really appreciated this type of, uh, <laughs> of pressure. And I would go back and I would just go over stuff and, and redo it and redo it. But the things that I was learning about history and Western civilization and business and sociology, I started to feel a little down because I felt like I had wasted my life and there was so much that I felt like I could contribute to society. But I also was motivated because I started to believe that I would hopefully one day get a second chance. And then I started thinking about the impact that I could make if I got that second chance, when I got that second chance. So I call that my positive delusion. And so that's what allowed me to wake up every morning and get out the bed and just like really study. And, you know, I eventually became a mentor and I started helping other people do it. That's amazing. And I love that term, the positive delusion, yeah. de deluding yourself into believing that you were going to get out and that you were going to be able to make these things happen, right? Right. And so then at some point you start bringing motions. You can tell me if I'm right about this, but I think yeah. you start bringing motions, which are applications to the court, basically, yes. to see if you can have your sentence reduced. Right. And what was that process like? I would do it every, probably every other year or something like that. Like I would get my high school diploma or graduate from shop. I would write the course. Like, what about now? Like I'm, I'm I haven't got any trouble. Uh, I accomplished all this stuff. I got maybe 15 therapeutic sessions that I've completed and time and time again, at least five times the courts would say, you know, your, your, uh, request has been noted and placed in your file. Not at this time. And so they would just tell me, going back to prison and not right now. And so after five times and 10 years in, you know, I, I would sometimes lose my faith on, on whether or not that everything that I was working towards would uh, come to fruition. Mm -hmm. so, um, something changed around this time where uh, one of my uh, mentees from El Salvador, who I was mentoring, and we were walking the yard one day and he says, you know, I don't understand. I see so many people that you've helped get out of prison and then some come back and then we see people get out and they come back and you helped all these people, but you, but you can't get a second chance. And he says, I never hear you talk about God and I don't want to get too religious with you, Chris, but maybe that's what's missing from your life. And then he walked away. And so I started thinking about this a lot and I started going back to my cell after this for about two weeks. 
And I started talking to God or whoever's up there, right? And I would read my master plan and I would say, I just need, I've read stories about you giving people signs in tough times, but I need my sign. And I need you to show me that everything that I'm working towards is not for, for nothing. And two weeks later, my lawyer came to see me and says, dude, I don't know what happened, but you got a court date. And so I interpret that as my sign or my, you know, my prayers being answered. I want to take a quick break and thank you all for listening. We still have lots to get to, but quickly. If you are enjoying this conversation and you feel as passionately as we do that these stories need to be shared, please support the show by subscribing and sharing it with a friend. Now back to the show. And so tell us about what happened when you went to court. I, I went back to court, I guess, two, two months later after I had started praying and the state's attorneys tore into me saying that my sentence was appropriate and that I should stay there. And I just, I had, you know, I was older now, obviously, and I think I was 28 or something like that. And I start, I just addressed the court. I was honest with them. And I talked about what it felt like to grow up in a very violent, tough neighborhood with my mom doing the best she could. I talked about what it felt like to lose. I lost five of my friends before the age of 17. Some of them were gunned down and died in my arms. I talked about uh, genuine remorse. You know, people came after me, but what I had to, I had to accept and understand was that I took a person's life and that I can't bring this person back. And I talked about like what that, what that felt like and, and taking victims impact groups and speaking to other victims and, and getting a different perspective of like what I did. And so I talked about uh, testing at the top of my class. Although I was in prison, I was taking college classes. I was doing really well. I was learning. I was helping other people. And then I talked about what I would do if given a second chance of how I would go back into the communities like I grew up in and be a positive example, create job opportunities. I didn't know the term social entrepreneurship back then, but I knew I wanted to create businesses that help people. And so I, I spoke about all of that stuff and the judge, she just was quiet. She just like leaned back in the bench and she stared at me for a while as she was thinking like whether or not she want, she was willing to risk her career to give me a second chance. There's a lot of people in the courtroom too. And they were looking at me and looking at the judge. And eventually she leaned back in and she says, I'm gonna give you a second chance to live with your life, but you can't be regular. You can't just get a job and start a family and fly under the radar. You made this ambitious master plan and I need you to finish it. It's law now and you better not disappoint me. Wow. And I had my sentence reduced after that. How did that feel? I mean, it was it was like a weight being lifted off my shoulder. It was having that light at the end of the tunnel, and it just it it was it was validation to all of those times in prison. I remember where there was this temptation of people like knocking on my door on my birthday because they smuggled in some liquor and was like, "Get your cup, it's your birthday, let's celebrate," and I would. Or refuse. And they would they would tell me, like, but you never going home. Won't you live a little bit? And I was like, but I am going home. And I'm gonna be this successful entrepreneur and I'm gonna travel the world. And she gave me validation that, you know, me resisting those temptations was the right thing to do. Yeah. And I still resist those temptations. Mm -hmm. and, well, and okay, so you get this news, I'm reducing your sentence. And was that it? Did you have to serve any more time after that? So uh, I got my sentence reduced and 
I was eligible to go to the halfway house and I had an acceptance letter to the University of Baltimore too, but the prison administrators were surprised that my sentence was reduced. And as a result, they changed their policies uh, in order to keep me in prison longer because they felt like I would get out of prison, I would reoffend, and that they would all lose their jobs. So I ended up had, having to do an additional four and a half years in prison, which I was very upset about, but I still knew that they had to let me out at some point. And so when they created this new policy, I just started studying more. I went to school and studied like A plus certification. I started studying uh, Mandarin and I started a career center. And I said, well, if I can't go home, I'm going to help prepare people, uh, you know, my brothers uh, when they go home. Amazing. And so four and a half years later, you're released. Take us back to that day where, you know, the doors open or the gates open or whatever it is. And all of a sudden after it's now been almost what, 15 years. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, it's been, it's been around that uh, 15 years. And I remember getting out, being completely overwhelmed with like the technology and society and stuff. I saw people walking around talking to themselves. I didn't know about the headsets and stuff with phones. And I had a college degree. So I remember moving to Baltimore and going to University of Baltimore and asking them to give me a chance to demonstrate myself as a student. And so I got into the school, uh, started flourishing, and then my mom found out I was home. And so I had a conversation with my mom, which um, didn't end too well. Do you want to share about that? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Uh, so my mom, after the attack, when we were younger, she was injured and she was prescribed pain pills, which she was never able to get off of. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point when she couldn't renew her subscriptions, my mom became addicted to heroin and anything else she could find. And so she spiraled downhill mm-hmm. and she ended up getting herself together. She had met someone and, and remarried and this person became her rock. And her process of trying to get off the heroin, I think they transitioned her to like methadone or something. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, she had put the methadone in some orange juice and it was in refrigerator in the basement and she was out running errands and her husband saw the orange juice in the refrigerator in the basement he was cleaning up and he poured a big cup of orange juice and he drunk it and um he died so when my mom came home she just she just spiraled and spiraled downhill and when she called me when i was home we talked for about five minutes and she was acting weird just you know she said you know i want you to Think about, you know, remember that I love you. I want you to finish your master plan. And I was like, all right, like, what? why are you acting weird? And then when my mom hung the phone up, she wrote a letter and she committed suicide. And so my mom never got a chance to see me actually as a free man. I've been out nine years now. And obviously that devastated me. But um, now, you know, I use, I use that pain as motivation to prove that my life uh, is redeemable and that I can help other people turn their lives around. And so that's one of the driving uh, forces of the work that I do today. Thank you for sharing that story. And why don't you tell us a little bit about as you were in that process of you've come out and you're kind of making sense of this new world that you find yourself in um, and you enroll in school. Can you tell us just a little bit about what we know that 
people who've been incarcerated face stigma when they are allowed to return to the community. And can you tell us a little bit about what that was like for you and if there are any stories that really stand out that highlight that? So, I mean, the process of reentry, at least my personal experience in the state of Maryland, was very difficult. I, I wasn't, none of us were, were supported by, we had caseworkers assigned to us, but they, <laughs> instead of them helping us improve our, our reentry process or support us, they were just trying to make it as difficult as possible for us. And so that was something that was very, I mean, it caught me off guard. I was trying to do everything right. I was, you know, I went and brought suits and dress clothes and I just wanted to school, go to school and be productive. But they would tell me that you guys don't deserve it and you guys shouldn't even be out here. You should be back in prison. They just made it really difficult for us. And there's other things too, when you think about like the reentry process that, that was challenging the psychological aspect, I was 32 years old when I got out of prison and I would see people my age who had families, who were going on vacation, who had cars and owned their homes and I didn't have anything. And luckily I had people in my life who encouraged me not to rush to catch back up with everyone else um, and to be patient. But unfortunately, a lot of people who I knew uh, would, would try to rush and catch back up and make poor decisions and violate their a parole or probation and go back to prison. Mm-hmm. I still see people doing this today. Yeah. And how easy is it? I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's already super difficult because of like the, the terms of parole or probation. You know, when you first get out, you have to come in twice a week and take your analysis, which you have to pay for. You don't have any money, but you got to pay for your analysis and you're required to get a job. But what employer is going to let you leave work? twice a week once you first start in order to take your analysis. Um, so it's, it's just one of those catch-22s. It's such a strange uh, situation. It's like there's no real way to apply for and get a job, even if you find an employer that isn't going to ask about criminal history right. without you disclosing it, because how else do you explain the fact that you have to disappear twice a week? Exactly. Yeah. It's so crazy. So were there any other, I mean, that is one of the big obstacles to successful reentry, the whole way that the probation and parole system is set up. And how else does that impact people? I mean, so so there's other things too, just the stigma of being, you know, the, the terminology of, you know, defining someone as a convicted felon, you know, a convict, this language that society uses towards people who are returning to society makes it so difficult for them to reacclimate into society and, you know, denying people their vote, their, their right to vote. Mm-hmm. You know, all of these things that make it so difficult and we're actually paying for this as taxpaying citizens. You know, I feel like we could get a better return on taxpayers, taxpaying dollars if we just, I don't know, if we just ran the prisons in the re-entry process differently. Yeah, and I know that this is something, well, it's something that we share in common that's really yeah. important to both of us. And tell me a little bit about how you would reimagine that system. So one of the things I think about, and I thought about this a lot when I was in prison, was that I met a lot of young people and a lot of untapped potential when I was incarcerated. And I was blessed uh, with the opportunity to be able to educate myself. It was Therapy was mandatory in the prison. And once I started embracing therapy and education, I started to think differently. And I started to see people, my uh, folks I was incarcerated, I started to change in a good way. And, 
you know, most of the people who went to therapy and went to school, I mean, that was incarcerated, 95% of people who are incarcerated, they come home. Once we got a little bit of this education and therapy and our system, we started to think different, make different decisions. And almost everyone has came home. They didn't go back to prison. And it's incredibly expensive to, to run prisons and finance all this stuff uh, in America. But if we, if we ran the prisons, if we turn them, I write about this in my book, if we, if we could turn these into success factories, um, it actually will allow people to get out and not recidivate, which costs jurisdictions incredibly amounts of money, but it also protects the public. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the biggest things they would say in prisons is like, we got to keep you in here because we got to keep the public safe. But if 95% of people are getting out, how do we want this person to conduct themselves once they get out? Do we want them to be worse? Because trust me, if there's no educational programs, if there's no therapy in the prisons, people are going to think about how to be better criminals. That's what they're going to talk about. I've seen it firsthand. And so we don't want people thinking like this. We want people to come out. We want people to learn how they ended up in prison. They want, we want them to correct any like deficiencies that they may have, give them a little bit of education um, that can help them reacclimate. And that's it. Mm-hmm. So that's what I envision. Yeah, creating opportunities for education and therapy and support both on the inside and then on the outside after people are released, giving that opportunity, like looking at things like the probation and parole system and figuring out, okay, how can we actually create a system that's supportive of people getting back on their feet, of people being able to get jobs and find housing and not that's going to actually shine a light on the fact that they have this past that they're trying to get away from and start fresh. Right. And is there anyone who stands out for you who really supported you when you, after you were released, who supported you in this kind of re-entry journey? I mean, absolutely. I mean, it it literally took a a village of people to help me. But I would say first, my... uh, also buddy, Stephen Edwards, who eventually became my mentor. He was definitely, even when I was released, I would talk to him every Sunday. He was a guiding voice telling me to be patient and making sure like I checked all the boxes and I was being smart. His family, the Edwards family also played a very instrumental role in providing emotional support, financial support. You know, just the fact that I didn't want to let them down. That was a driving force. All of my professors, all of them, honestly, from college, stayed in touch with me. I'm still in touch with them today. They encouraged me to further my education. I met a few people when I first came home, Jane Brown, who I, who I write about, who, um, you know, helped me start my businesses and became like a mom to me and just really like inspired me to pay it forward and not just better myself, but help other people better themselves. And so Chester France is a person who started a reentry program in Maryland uh, I didn't even know him, but he had heard about me. He started writing me right before I came home and he played an instrumental role. And so that's one of the things that I like to advocate about is there are people like me. There's other Chris's and Christine's everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I just would hope that people would see that potential and just take take the extra time to mentor and help them out so that they can create their own master plans and do something good in the communities. And so that's what I'm trying to champion through, you know, sharing my, my story. Yeah. And well, and I, you're also championing it in the way that you're showing up in the world. And can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing? Yeah. So, so now, I mean, I started out by founding a couple of contracting companies uh, in Baltimore. I ran those for about eight years and 
after that, I decided that I wanted to write uh, a book that shared my story, the master plan. So I was able to do that. And then around the same time I started making art. So I became a visual artist and I just fell in love with making art and I've traveled the world. I've been to 24 countries since I've been home and I brought my dream car, the black Corvette convertible and bought a home. I've started the Chris Wilson foundation, uh, which supports prison education, art related programs, financial literacy. I started a Chris Wilson Scholarship Fund at University of Baltimore where I help people that are incarcerated who are working towards a bachelor's degree. And then this grant that I give every year is flexible. They can help them get laptops, clothes for job interviews, or just pay off college tuition. And so, you know, now I split my time between New York and Baltimore, but I'm still champion, you know, criminal justice reform. I work closely with the Marshall Project, which is a media company that uh, reports accurately on uh, people impacted by the criminal justice system. And I am a part of an organization called APDS that provides educational tablets for people incarcerated. I've turned my book into a, a masterclass course, which will be finished in a couple of weeks, that will be on this tablet that will go into 18 different states. And this particular tablet company does not charge incarcerated individuals or their families because we have other tablet companies out there and they charge and, and price gouge. And so they don't do that. So this is what's getting me out of bed in the morning. And I surround myself with positive, beautiful people. And, you know, I have no, I have no wants in the world other than to continue to make an impact in people's lives. Wow. I mean, it's all of the things that you're doing are making such a huge impact. It, you're incredible truly incredible. Here's where I, I want to end. And this is how I end every interview. So I sort of look at the way that we currently deal with returning citizens as it's almost like you're released from incarceration and you have this name tag stuck on you that you're leading with that says, you know, whatever it was you were convicted of or, you know, or criminal or incarcerated or whatever that is. And if you could go back in time and tear off that name tag and write a new one, whatever it was that you wanted people to see in you uh, when you were walking back out as a free man, what would that be? I would want it to be perhaps a social entrepreneur that believed in paying it forward and helping people who society uh, tends to ignore. Uh, I'm real big on that and mm -hmm. just helping people and encouraging people to live good lives. I don't know. I think I think that's that's what I would define it as. I mean, obviously, like I said earlier, like I'm passionate about art. I think it's so beautiful. It's given me the resources to help so many people and tell powerful stories. And so I would rather, if, if I had a magic wand, I would want to be uh, remembered that way. And, you know, just the mistake that I made uh, with my crime, if I could have that be reversed, um, that would be my ideal life. But that's not the case. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. And I know... First, I'm just going to say, encourage everybody to get a copy of Chris's book. It is unbelievable. I downloaded the audiobook. I have not been able to stop listening. It's available in paper and audiobook called The Master Plan. Where else can people find you, follow you, support you? Yeah, so I would encourage people uh, to check out my website, chriswilson.biz.biz, and follow me on Instagram, which is chriswilsonbaltimore.com. 
And if you've read my book already, please share it with people who you feel like my story would resonate with. Yeah. Perfect. Thank you for listening. It truly means the world that you have taken time out of your day and spent it with us on our mission to shift hearts and minds and the conversation around criminality and incarceration. If you feel as passionately as we do that these stories need to be shared, there are a couple of things you can do to support the show. First, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Second, check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash thefieldpodcast, where you can access more content like this. See you next time.